Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Well, I hope you had the chance to listen to Sunday's episode about Shep Tinker, Southeast Ohio's favorite horse thief and counterfeiter. So let's make this a theme week because we've got another colorful story from the same time period about another counterfeiter, this time in Southwest Ohio's Adams County. This is the story of the counterfeit house. In 1836, three new settlers from New York arrived in Adams County, about three miles south of present-day Manchester in Monroe Township. There they found a lovely secluded spot overlooking the Ohio River. The land was a plateau of yellow freestone the time it covered in soil and surrounded by virgin forest. The level crest of the hill is called Gift Ridge. It circles around for many miles and had once been an Indian settlement. The leader of these new arrivals was Oliver Ezra Tompkins. The pretty lady with him was Ann Tompkins, He introduced her as a sister, though some wondered if she was his wife or mistress. Later, stories about her used the name Anne Lovejoy. We'll solve that problem in our story by just calling her Anne. There was another man with them, a man who clearly was an accomplice in their plans, but history never recalled his name or bothered to explain what became of him. Oliver Tompkins purchased 200 acres of land on Gift Ridge and proceeded to build a house. When neighbors inquired about the construction, he would refer to his house as a mansion. Certainly no mansion by today's standards, but in 1836, it must have been a fine house indeed, with six double chimneys jutting from the slightly hipped roof. What the community didn't know was that the house was being built with one purpose in mind, to serve as the center of a counterfeit-making operation. Oliver was an engraver by training and quite suited to his criminal career. 
The 1800s was a golden age for counterfeiters. There was no national currency. Until the National Banking Acts of 1865, there were a countless number of banks, companies, and merchants who issued their own notes. It was an age of economic confusion. Tompkins House was confusing as well. Those chimneys, half of them were fake. The fake ones were blocked to the outside, although ductwork would carry smoke from the working chimneys out of the others, so they all appeared real. But in truth, inside, the openings contained hidden passageways that led to secret rooms, including one 10 by 12 foot room where the engraving was done. The house had more doors than one might expect, as if the designer was concerned about being trapped or cornered. It was a house that would allow free chase or free escape, if either were necessary. And many of the doors were of a strange design, six inches thick with hollow interiors. A great place for hiding cash. Tompkins also designed a roof that incorporated lead in the construction. It was a legitimate purchase for an illegitimate intent, for the order brought in all the lead he would need for making his counterfeit engraving plates. The house was far from the bustle of any city, but there were other people in the area, and as sneaky as he thought he was being, Tompkins couldn't completely conceal the fact that he was up to something. The house had an attic with a small window set into the front, and many nights a lantern would burn in the attic window, not always steady, sometimes flashing like in a pattern. People had seen it. It was also hard to hide the fact that Tompkins was visited often in the dead of night by men who would arrive on horseback, stay but a short time, and then leave. Revenue men, employed by the government to make sure folks were paying their taxes, noticed that about this time, a lot of new counterfeit money was showing up in settlements along the Ohio River, both bills and plaster coins. They looked with suspicion at the so-called mansion on the hill, about which rumors had been generating but they had no evidence. One day, someone, maybe one of the taxmen, maybe a private detective, decided to collect some evidence. The man posed as a peddler who had just by chance stopped at the house to show off his wares. What gave him away, we'll never know. But that detective didn't leave the house alive. He was shot dead in the spacious hall just inside the front door and reportedly buried somewhere on the property. But the days of the counterfeit house were numbered, and the beginning of the end came when Anne planned a shopping trip to Cincinnati. She took a riverboat to the city, booked herself in a hotel room, and visited some stores. In one store, she purchased a scarf with a counterfeit bill, which was immediately recognized. After Anne left the store, store detectives followed. Anne must have sensed it. She went back to her hotel room, threw the scarf into a burning fireplace, and hurried to catch a riverboat back to her home in Adams, three counties away. 
The detectives found the scarf partially burned in the fire and determined she had boarded a riverboat. They took one themselves and continued their pursuit. Once back home, Anne told Oliver she had a tale. It was all over. They packed up what they could and fled. I'm not sure of the timeline here, but reportedly they had had enough time to convince a neighbor to buy the house and the land at a fraction of its value. They explained this by saying they had to hurry back to New York because of an illness in the family. Then they were gone. Later, there was evidence that the Tompkins had actually moved to Kentucky. When the detectives arrived at the counterfeit house, the door was open. They walked in to find it empty. One or more men who had utilized the services of Oliver Tompkins told authorities how the operation worked. Being on the river, many of the buyers came to the area by steamboat from as far as Cincinnati to the west and Pittsburgh to the east. Those who brought their own boats would dock at a landing about a mile below the house, then trek up to the ridge. Others arrived on horseback. On nights the Tompkins was open for business, the light in the attic window would signal it was safe to approach. The buyer would walk up the steps to the front door. The door would always appear locked, but the lock had a secret. The visitor would know a specific series of twists and movements that would release the latch and open the door so they could enter without being attended to. The buyer would know not to venture any farther into the great entrance hall, but instead turn to the first door on the right. That door had a small section cut out just large enough to accommodate a sheaf of bills. The buyer would slide his real money, some say the purchase price was $10, into the opening. It would disappear and some unseen hand would slide $500 in counterfeit money in its place. The buyer would leave, never having seen to or spoken with a single soul. Several years after the Tompkins fled Adams County, one story puts this in 1851, a small group of people arrived late one evening and knocked at the door of the house atop Gift Ridge. They had with them a coffin. They told the people who lived in the house at the time that the coffin contained the body of Oliver Tompkins, that he had died and it had been his wish to be buried here. Permission was given. Services were held at midnight by candlelight. There was no minister, but words were spoken, and the body was interred. But the owners of the house, who attended the strange ceremony, later whispered to their neighbors that the coffin had been opened, and they felt certain that the body inside was a plaster figure, not a human corpse. And out of that grew the rumor that Oliver Tompkins had been there as well, hiding in the shadows and watching his own funeral. For decades into the 20th century, the counterfeit house was a tourist attraction, standing like a monument to this mysterious history. In the 1960s, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Johnson would share news clippings and county records that they had collected that pieced together its story though they warned that many of the details passed down through the years 
were oral history. And while the basic facts could be proven, it was impossible to know which parts of the legend were embellished. Mrs. Johnson also liked pointing out a rusty-colored stain in the main hall, which she contended was the century-old dried blood from the murdered detective. Robert Johnson also shared that in the 1950s, he was building a barbecue pit under a cliff below the house when he unearthed some human bones. Of course, it was impossible at that time to tell if the bones belonged to a murdered 19th century detective or an Indian who belonged to one of the native tribes who had dwelled there. From what I can tell, the house still stands, but please don't approach it. This is private property, and it is in dangerous disrepair. The owners have begged people not to trespass. In 2008, a storm ripped off much of the roof, destroyed a chimney, and collapsed part of the house. Efforts to raise money to try and save the structure failed, and more recent stories i found indicate it is beyond saving. The only thing sure to survive is the legend. That's it for our 10-minute mystery. We'll see you next Sunday for our next full episode. Until then, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.